Hello, and welcome to the Black Men Speak podcast, a podcast that highlights everyday black men doing extraordinary things for their families and the communities in which they live. Tonight, we interview Michael Jasper. His character and who he is as a black man is the epitome of the Black Men Speak story. On today's show, he'll drop some gems on love. Communication is key. And really talking about how you're feeling, discussing them, not if you have a disagreement or something that you're not on the same page, not discussing them in a way that one of us wins or loses. Discussing them as a way how do we fix it or make it right is important. The other thing I think is critically important is that having a vested interest in the other person's success or happiness, however they define it. What can I do? What can I sacrifice? What can I impact that will make your life better? How to raise and empower children. And kids should know every day that they're loved and they're valued and that home is a safe space. Never um, uh, squash a child's dream, no matter how out there it is. Mm. Never do that. And his biggest worry as a black man. Um, and as a, as a black man, I worry about, I cannot protect them the way I, I, I always hoped I could. And so it worries me that I may provide for them like a great education and, and everything, but then they're going to go out in society and just be judged and valued unfairly because they're black. And it's probably very naive, but always hoping that we would be on, we would be beyond this. Uh, you know, part of uh, Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech states that, you know, I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will be judged not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Well, um, you know, Dr. King examined the ca character or content of this brother. He would be well pleased. He's a husband of Stephanie Jasper, his college sweetheart from the Georgetown University. You know, in over 25 years, they've been married. Uh, he's a father of two uh, intelligent young ladies in their own right, Lauren and Natalie, and his son, Matthew. He's a pillar in his hometown community of uh, Pittsburgh uh, as a VP of marketing at PNC Bank. One thing you may not know about, he's a passionate barbecuer with a smoker that rivals some restaurateurs. If you don't know, if you haven't seen it, I'm sure... <laughs> You could uh, travel to Pittsburgh and he would show you, you know, but, you know, tonight we are, you know, we're going to give him a chance uh, to tell his story because it, it needs to be told. Michael, welcome, sir. How you doing? I'm doing well, Keith. Thank you for having me. Thank you. And that's oh. such a warm introduction. I appreciate it. Of course. Of course. So, you know, we're going to take you back. I want to just uh, bring up this clip um, of okay. your, uh, this program that you're in. And then we're going to just, that'll be our jumping off point. Mike Jasper is someone who was born and raised in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Um, lived here all my life, grew up in East Liberty, Peabody High School. Uh, now I live here in the city with my wife and three kids. Um, yeah, so that's who I am, basically. Because my story will never be on the news. I am not what they see. What they see too often is dysfunctional men that have so many problems that they haven't been able to overcome. And that seems to be what the media wants. 
Yes, we have problems, but we overcome them. Uh, and we also have a segment of black men that are doing very good in the communities, doing very good by their families and church. With my films, be able to tell a story of black men who are overcoming, uh, who are successful, and are participating in this society. My name is Michael Jasper, and I am a game changer. Love it, love it. So, um, yeah, take you back. So what, what made, and I don't just want to talk about, what made you decide to make that, um, that film? And why, uh, at that point, did you think, you know, a story about you wouldn't be told? Well, you know, every day or, 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 yeah, practically every day when you look at the news and you see stories about black men, it's, um, it's a stereotype, it's negative, and you don't hear about black men who are just going about raising their families, acting in their communities, trying to help their fellow man and be positive. I mean, and so the, that, that film was from a project called the um, Game Changers. And so it was sort of introductory video of what I would like to see, you know, like how we're being portrayed. And so made that video just to kind of paint the point that, you know, my story will never be told. And, and it's still true today. You never see stories of black men who are just, quote unquote, doing the right thing. It's always some negative spin or it's these uh, insurmount insurmountable odds of overcoming challenges and, and nothing wrong with overcoming challenges. Not, you know, I don't want to be like that, but, um, you know, we're always shown in, in a negative light. And so that video and some of the other videos that I made, like these documentaries, tried to show positive aspects of black men. And I think it's important as a father, uh, as a husband, as a member of the community, that people see that. You need to see a lot more of it, frankly. Well, and that's one of the reasons why we do this podcast live stream <laughs> show is to right. feature brothers like yourself. So we're going we're gonna to get in it a little bit. So I okay. hope you're ready. Yep. Um, so you, you grew up in Pittsburgh. Um, and so back then, what, what traits would you say help you develop as who you are by growing up in the city? At that time when I grew up, Pittsburgh was going through a change. Uh, it was a very blue collar town that was going through uh, uh, the exodus, continued exodus of the steel industry. And so th the one thing I always sort of took from that experience is that, you know, black folks didn't have much. I mean, my family didn't have much, but we had each other. And so I felt at the time that that was normal. As I look back on my uh, upbringing, I realized I was um, very fortunate. Uh, I, I grew up in a very, very stable home um, and always knew that I was loved, always knew that I was supported, always knew that I could accomplish anything I wanted to. If you put in hard work, um, you could do it. Um, I never had a sense of not being able to do something, uh, not until high school when I was trying to get, no, uh, I'm sorry, um, 
around seventh or eighth grade when I was accepted into a private school, but we couldn't afford it. And I think it was the first time I had this realization that, okay, well, there's, you know, there's a difference there, but I, I, I never let that stop me. That was the first time I kind of realized that, you know, economic differences and your upbringing uh, and where you're from and what your parents did may matter in terms of your immediate opportunities. But I was never, ever given any inkling I couldn't accomplish something. So I think that was probably coming from Pittsburgh was the greatest thing. I mean, I still have very close friends and, and obviously families here. Um, you know, Pittsburgh can be a tough city for um, black folks. But I think growing up here with my family really helped me steal me for the future to come, that anything that I set my mind to, I could accomplish it. Okay, great. Yeah, and that's that's great because then it leads to the fact that you were applied to Georgetown University and then you were accepted. Uh, did you, were you there on mm -hmm. a scholarship? I was recruited by recruited? several schools. Yeah. Okay. And so, um, uh, honestly, Georgetown was the one school um, that of all the other schools that recruited me that seemed to take academics serious and was the, and the school, the track team was phenomenal. Yeah, so I was recruited by several several schools. Um, made the choice to go to Georgetown. Not only it was a great school for middle distance runners, um, but academically, it was it really stood out from the others, and you know various other reasons, driving distance from home, things. So, so yeah, I was there and uh, ran off four years. Life changing. That's great. So yeah, so. Entering, because, you know, yes, Georgetown was, their track team was phenomenal and in the middle distance. So when you entered, knowing that, you know, the acclaim that Georgetown track had, how did you feel um, coming in? What are some of the things you had to do to get, I guess, prepared to the, you know, the rigors of college, the college schedule versus high school? So from a track perspective, uh, it was really um, nothing technically that different. It was just the volume of the work was a lot more. Um, mm -hmm. And the competition, the people that you ran against, your teammates, I mean, you're like, you know, some of the best in the country. And so every day you, you sometimes you took that butt whooping, um, you know, so you just had to go ahead and do it. Ran a lot in um, the volume of of the workouts was something that I had to get adjusted to. So injuries and things like that, just from the amount of running that you had to do compared to high school. And the pressure was different. You know, I think a lot of times in, in middle school and high school, you know, if, you, if you're an athlete, you know, a lot of times it's just you're cheered on and congratulations, you ran or you worked hard or you played hard as you could. In Georgetown, you were expected to win you're expected mm -hmm. to put up numbers. You're expected to compete at a certain level. And if you didn't, you heard about it. So, um, wow, yeah. you know, and it wasn't that I, I, one of the thing that really hit home with that is my junior year indoor nationals, the four by 800, we came in fourth. I thought our head coach, coach Gags was going to make us walk home from Indianapolis. <laughs> I mean, he yeah, was, I heard, I heard coach was tough. <laughs> he was livid. And, and his thing was, well, you're the best team. You, sh you should have won. 
and we won it the next year. And part of that was a relief that, you know, we finally accomplished what we were supposed to do. But, you know, it's right. You know, it, you come there and you're expected to compete at a certain level. And, you know, you don't meet those expectations, you hear about it. So there's a constant pressure to compete at a high level that wasn't there in high school or even club track. It, it was a big difference. And so, yeah, you, you mentioned that you won. So you are NCAA uh, champion, which is uh, something I've never experienced uh, being on the baseball team. <laughs> but um, describe, you know, for, what was that like? You know, because of course we've experienced uh, championships from the basketball side, um, but from the track side and being in it personally, you took what those winnings and uh, onto your next endeavors. And what was just like to be a champion? Yeah, it, it's. Um... This isn't really a question. I think it meant different things at different times. I think when it happened, it was this sort of surreal feeling that uh, we competed and we won. And I can't, you know, even talk about it when mentioning other guys on that relay team, Ethan Fry, Steve Holman, Rich Kana, and they're just phenomenal athletes and, and great friends and phenomenal men, actually. And at that time, it was the competitiveness, you know, we beat Villanova, you beat Arkansas. Um, it was just that uber competitiveness of lining up and racing and beating someone. And then to find out you broke the American record, you know, you're just, mm. you, you can't put it into words. Um, as time goes by, it's more of you you recognize it becomes a legacy, something that you know, won't be duplicated. I mean, you won and broke the record. It can't happen. And it kind of says, hey, you know, you, you did pretty well in college. You know, you, you, you did pretty well in what that means. And, um, and it leads to that sense of you know, there's nothing wrong with uh, competition. And, you know, don't be afraid to be the best or strive to be the best. You know, um, success can be... You know, I think some people kind of pull away from success sometimes. It, it, that's kind of hard to describe, but, you know, there's nothing wrong with being successful if you do it the right way, you know, through hard work mm -hmm. and, and you right. accomplish those things. And what it leads to, it, it gives you a sense of confidence that if I'm successful, I can be successful in other areas of life. Whatever you think is important to you, you can be successful as well. So um, now when I think back on it, you know, it's the brotherhood, it's the memories, it's the fact that uh, Georgetown was so instrumental in my life, um, as was well all those guys on the track team and Coach Gags and, uh, and everything that, you know, that's what it means now. It definitely has a different meaning, but it's it's something that will, will, will go on with me. Um, as Ethan Fry said, longer we go, the bigger it becomes, or faster we <laughs> Yeah, <become>. right. <laughs> I <laughs> know, right? That's awesome. <laughs> right. Awesome. But so then around that time when you guys were winning, you you also won in another area. So and and September of eight, 1989, I'll take you back. Um there was a beautiful young woman that entered the campus of Georgetown named <laughs> Stephanie. I'm not sure her maiden name was at the time, but Smith. Smith. Yeah. Ventures on campus. So we're going back. Right. So uh, how did you meet? 
And so, and then what, how did you, you know, we'll, we'll just ask, how do you, how did you meet? Well, we met, we both were on the track team. Um, and so, you know, um, similarities there, just being both on a track team, both being athletes. She was Pennsylvania. I'm from Pennsylvania. And I think uh, at first I, I you know, viewed her as someone, hey, she's Pennsylvania, got to take care of, you know, <laughs> Pennsylvania, you know. Um, uh, but uh, over time we, we, you know, really bonded. I think we were um, different in some respects that really complemented each other. Um, you know, I was a junior and she was a freshman and, you know, I think she, she helped me in a lot of ways, you know, going through uh, a really rough patch of life. Um, and so I, and I always thought that I kind of took care of her. So I think there was a common bond there. Um, and yeah, we, we met then and, um, yeah, that's 30 years ago, right? I think something like that. Yeah. Something, yeah. Something like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. There, and so was it, was it something that was a immediate uh, connection or was it something that kind of grew as the years uh, went on? I think there was an immediate sort of uh, um, uh, affection and, and wanting to, from my perspective, really look after her uh, immediately. I think, you know, especially when I look back, I, I really, Relied on her a lot because, like I said, you know, my um, my father had passed after my freshman year very unexpectedly, and um, you know, my ability to deal with that, you know, I, I just couldn't. You know, I was young, and I went back to campus right after it happened in late July. Mm -hmm. Back on campus in August because you know, so he would want me there, uh, and. Uh, close, close friends in college, you know, that I, I was telling you about like, um, Chuck, Adrian, Dwayne, Dewan, Kent, you know, Everett, uh, dear, dear friends. Um, but it's hard to rely or, or confide in them about what's going on. Um, coach was really trying to help me, but you know, it's hard. And, um, even your track buddies or, or teammates. And the one thing, uh, you know, that Steph, was able to do with you know her her quiet strength was help me get through that. I mean, my sophomore year was really rough. It was off the track was really rough because of that. And so, right, um, her quiet strength really got me through that. And I think uh, I kind of helped her a little bit too. And she and she tells me, you know, with being at Georgetown and everything. And so it was a it was a bond from that standpoint. Um, I always knew when we first kind of got together that she was the one. I think I was being hard-headed and saying, you know, <laughs> not really <laughs> admitting to it at first, but I think right, I always right. knew that she was the one because she, uh, she was definitely special and she was different. Was, I think it was the first time who I relied on a female, I mean, besides someone in my family, uh, relied on them, you know, for for strength and for encouragement. And sometimes it takes you to get older to realize that. It took me a while to really understand what that connection was. Mm -hmm. um, but it's the same today, you know, that um, we have that connection. And uh, it's so, it's, it's a very powerful connection beyond just 
you know, physical in, in things. And, and of course, that's, you know, theirs is a man, but it's it's beyond that. Yeah, and I'm, I'm glad you pointed that out, because I think at times we will try as men will try to run away from that because we don't have the physical connection or it wanes that it's not the person that we are with is not is not special. But when you can you can have both how it's truly magical. And so, you know, that that's that's wonderful. And I'm glad that you were um, had the the intelligence to to make to to uh, to acknowledge that just for yourself and to and to stick with it. So that's pretty great. So yeah. Um, so yeah. then, you know, you mentioned her quiet strength. So what are some of the other things that you feel have, um, you know, have kept your relationship so strong over the years? Because, you know, 30 plus years. I mean, that's truly yeah. a, that's truly a long time and should be commended. So, you know, what Thank are you. some of those things? Uh, I think, you know, it's communication is key. Um, and really talking about how you're feeling, discussing them, not if, if you have a disagreement or something that you're not on the same page, not discussing them in a way that one of us wins or loses, discussing them as a way how do we fix it or make it right is important. The other thing I think is critically important is that having a vested interest in the other person's um, success or happiness, however they define it. It's not just career or whatever, but however they define it. So what can I do? What can I sacrifice? What can I impact that will make your life better? And, and so I think that's been what we've really kind of strived for, um, over the course of time. And I think we kind of got to that place, not, you know, not overnight, but, you know, when you see someone is having um, a, a, a rough patch or, or um, not happy with some aspect of their life, you know, kind of step back. Well, you know, if she's my queen and I'm her king, how can we make their lives better? And so now it really works well because we found like we're always rowing in the same direction um, to make each other's life better. And we plan the future together and everything. And, um, you know, we, we never feel like we're just two strangers, you know, in the house passing through the night kind of thing. Awesome. Cause I, so I know that it has to serve you well, uh, since you guys both kind of work at the same place, how long have you both worked at the same place and what have some of the, how have you maintained that? So that, cause if we're talking about, and I don't know if you're in the same building, but it's still 24 seven of, yeah. you know, you can, you can, you can easily get into, I guess, shop talk because when you're at the same company and then, you know, and everything else. So uh, what are right. some of those things that you guys have done or have you had to put up any, uh, I guess, boundaries to say, well, look, we're not talking work tonight or anything like that. We've kind of come to that point. I think prior to that, you know, I've been at PNC for oh, 13, 14 years. And I think she's been there 20 years. Um, we've never worked in the same area. So one of the fortunate things is it's a very big company. So right. we don't cross paths um, that much. Now with COVID, we're both here at home working. We haven't been in the office for over a year. And mm. so it's very easy to to have to talk shop. So 
one of the things we've done is that like at five o'clock we close the laptops and we come you know we leave our workspaces and that's it it's kind of this unwritten rule that you know it, it's kind of it's over it's we try to simulate getting and leaving work and going to do something else so that we don't have that um now there's times where we can't avoid it if there's some big issue and uh last year with all the social unrest pnc had some um initiatives and some difficult conversations that we both participated in mm. we're both part of the black leaders forum at pnc so there there are things that we do overlap but we try to keep that at a minimum after a certain hour or, or else you know you would never get rid of it. you would never leave it so right right uh, that's what we try to do um can't say it's perfect but we try Right, right. Yeah, and that, and I'm glad you mentioned those conversations. Um, so, because you're in an executive at a bank, and of course, there's always challenges in the banking industry. So, what were those conversations like, just to participate? And how did you guys lean on each other for strength in that? So, you mean from last year to all the from last year? Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. It, it was tough, you know. I think um, Ahmad Aubrey. Um, you know, kind of set it off and, you know, you know, a lot of black colleagues talk amongst each other, but when, uh, Mr. Floyd was that knee on the neck and I just remember that Monday, you know, I said, I don't, I don't feel like working today. You know, I just can't. Mm, right. And, um, you know, the, our CEO kind of acknowledged it. I think there was just a real pain unlike we've seen before um and so what we've been able to do i mean pnc's had a lot of conversations and, and they structured it listen learn and then action and so the first mm -hmm. part was listen and so there was a lot of either enterprise-wide all the way down the staff meeting level meetings about listen and being one of the few in my wife as well you know, blacks in management, you sort of feel like you're kind of being singled out, but it was a really an opportunity to be very candid. Um, and basically the message was, you know, usually every day when something happens in society, you know, your black colleagues come to work, put a smile on their face, put their, their clothes on and come in and do their job and ask you how your weekend were, how and everything. And, and we mm -hmm. do not bring up what's going on um, in our communities. We, we code switch, we talk about other things to fit in. And, and now we want you to know that your black colleagues are not all right. This is not the first time, but this is something that you know, is impacting us. And you need to understand how this is impacting your black colleagues that um, if we're not all right, we're not as productive. We can't satisfy our customers. We can't, you know, work as well together. And, um, you know, it, it, we can't just stay silent for these things. And so a lot of conversations, both in, in, um, in conferences, one-on-one uh, -on -one calls, um, emails, texts, you know, uh, a, a lot of people, um, white colleagues just really not knowing what to say, surprised um, that this stuff occurs. And then you start to talk about simple things that go on in your life, you know, or, you know, when you're the only black in a meeting, 
and you notice that. So you sit there and think, do I have to talk better? Do I have to dress better? Do I have to make sure I'm sitting up straight? Um, you know, if I make a mistake or someone gives pushback on the point I'm making, it's worse than if a white person does it. Um, those simple things. Uh, when they talk about what's happening outside of work, you know, you, you, what do you say? You know, you can't really talk about, at least before, the stuff in community or what you see in society that was um, institutional racism, police brutality, uh, right. inequality, those things you just didn't talk about. You know, now I think a lot of companies are coming around to it. Um, it's still not perfect, but it's it's been a change. It's it was tiring. And I guess you you probably can imagine. I mean, you just you talk about it over and over yeah. and over again. Then you feel like as a black person, you know, you're carrying a burden. Not only are you the one dealing with the oppression, but you're also explaining it. And you're also help, helping people who feel guilty because they didn't know about it. You know, that burden is real. But I think those conversations have to happen. You know, if we're truly going to make pro progress, difficult conversations need to happen before things get better. And have you seen a, a shift at your organization? I think so. I do think so. Um, because I, I know I've been at the, the bank for a number of years and I've seen past attempts at diversity and inclusion. Uh, but this one is different, um, where now we have Blacks who are part of the executive committee. Um, we have that in our goals and objectives about it, and um, it's being made clear to management um, that this is the way the company is going. Um, we also know now, because of consumer habits, you know, that if you don't get it right, you know, it can impact your business. Um, so there is more of a push, I think, now to make sure that uh, we get it right, um, that they understand that, you know, if you have a large area of the company and there are no black employees, that's a problem. And to say you hire the best and the brightest or you're doing everything you can is no longer an, exclu an excuse. So it'll take more time, but I do think uh, I've seen a, a difference, which is good. Great, yeah. And I think there are, there are companies that are trying to make, uh, make that shift to have more diversity and inclusion, but we do have a long way to go. Um, but when mm. you're in an organization that at least acknowledges that you know, there have been some inequities and can make and are making choices to try to do different things. That's that's a good place to start. Right. Um, right. Right. So, you know, so in the beginning, we I showed uh, your video of being a game changer. Um, so and I guess that's are you still doing that project? And what really inspired you to kind of create that? Because I just thought it was awesome. You know, the fact that you, <laughs> Thank you, you saw, you know, you saw your community and you wanted to do something about it. I, I, um, I haven't done it lately simply because of time constraints. So because of corporate and then, you know, my daughter or, and my son that play AAU basketball, um, AAU basketball is, it's, it, it literally <laughs> sucks all the time. Oh, you sure life. does. I, hey. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I hope to continue to do more of it. And I wanted to, to what inspired me was just to tell things from a different perspective. And so uh, I did one, uh, project about 
um, what the uh, Omega men in Pittsburgh are doing. I'm not I'm not a Greek uh, Omega myself, um, but what they're doing in terms of helping the community. I did one for Homeless Children's Education Fund, which is a nonprofit, and, and you know, telling those stories about people who are who are just trying to do better and to make it who are doing good things though i mean this is something that again the news won't show black men doing things to help others make it and and it's and it's it's help on a basic level which i think is something that's truly missing like oftentimes we see these extraordinary uh examples of people going above and beyond to help others which is fantastic and, and i don't mean to say that it's not criminal justice reform, which is needed, not saying it's not, things to help low to moderate income, again, which is needed. But I don't fit either of those buckets. And I'm also suffering from systemic racism. And so it tells me that society sees me as either someone that needs help dealing with the criminal justice system, or they need help because I'm poor, and I'm not. And even though we make up a percentage of that, I think it's important that you see, you know, black men who are who are just out every day trying to do the right thing and not label us or put us in these extreme buckets, you know, on either side. Right. Um, and those stories, I think, just need to be out there more. Yeah, exactly. Um, and that's one of the reasons why I decided to do the podcast. Yeah, thank you for doing this. Because it, it does... Um, it's tough when you're on when it is opposite sides of the spectrum because when you are just out in the community or just interacting with people, you know they're gonna obviously think you're either one side or the other. Wait, I know you don't look like an entertainer, so you must be <laughs> <laughs> you must be on the other side of the spectrum, uh, you know. And right. and we and we have all different we have different people. We all walks of life. We have people that are doing well. We have people that are not. But and that was what makes us human. And so. By being able to showcase these, you know, you and others uh, just does make it a, a lot more holistic. So, and it yeah. just needs to be done and more people need to do it. Exactly. So thank you for doing it. It yeah, needs absolutely. to be done. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, um, you know, on, on this show, I don't know if you watch, but uh, my last episode, I did a um, podcast with Dr. Jan Yemi from, uh, he's from Washington State. And mm-hmm. we, were, we were talking about uh, prostate cancer mm. uh, among, among black men. And um, we uh, talked about um, men not going out and get tested and trying to find out, you know, where they are, baseline num- figures of where they are. So I do know that, uh, that you were diagnosed uh, with prostate cancer. So, um, right. you know, kind of take me back to that day for one. And then what was it like to tell your family? And then mm. how did they keep you strong during that time? Because I know that was one of the things that I admired about you just going through your, you know, not trolling, but just going through getting a sense of who you are, your strong sense of family. So I'd love to hear, you know, hear that. Because one, that's just one thing that we as black men won't do. We won't tell those stories, especially when it's not glowing. You know, when we're going through right. adversity, <laughs> we'll tend to not share it. So I'd love if you would share that. Yeah, absolutely. So I, um, I, I was fortunate. I had a, a doctor that because I'm African-American, I uh, started getting tested for prostate and colon cancer early. So when I, I you know, got the PSA and the exam, 
uh, and one year the the PSA spiked, and so I went to you know the urologist and everything, battery of tests, and that whole time of you know going through tests and everything before I got diagnosed, you know, I was kind of in denial. Uh, you know, I thought you know I, I I used to be a good athlete, <laughs> you know I'm in good shape, I'm young. I mean, of course I don't have cancer. And when the doctor called me one evening, I kind of suspected something because he called and didn't leave a message. And he called back and he said, look, I'm just not going to beat around the bush. It's cancerous. I think I went blank. I didn't hear anything else he said, you know, because you just um, that's just something you don't want to hear. And you, you hear all the horror stories about cancer and what that means. And he was very, you know positive we're gonna we're gonna beat this and you know and so the first thing i did was call stephanie very quick call uh she just basically hung the phone and decided to come home from where she was you know we're in the bedroom in tears and uh at the time the kids were home so they saw something was amiss at the time i I decided to assess i should just tell them i don't know if that was good or bad because I don't think I did it. I could do a good job of comforting them because I didn't have all the information. I'm still reeling from the news. So uh, my youngest son at the time, who was probably five, I think, we just told him I had a stomach ache. And so not to burden him with that, but my daughters knew and they took it really hard mm-hmm. uh, as my family did because it's the first time we had had any experience with this. So my wife, is is always was there with her very quiet strength. She's she just is always constant, always there. Um, it can be anything from a word of encouragement to simply holding my hand, um, talking to the doctors for me. Um, so from that standpoint, it was very uplifting, you know. And and my my kids who were dealing with it were, I think not trying to burden with asking a lot of questions. They tried to keep a, maintain uh, normalcy as much as, posi- much as possible. Our extended friends and family were, were phenomenal as well. I mean, they, everyone was shocked. All my guys from Georgetown were so supportive, you know, here constantly. Um, even here in Pittsburgh, you know, when I went through surgery, you got Chuck Pettifer. I, mean, I know you don't know him, but in case he's listening, and acknowledge you know, he was unbelievable showing up at the hospital at the house extended couples that we kind of fellowship with constantly were incredible um coming to the house and helping so that was huge and so i felt very much so that um once i figured out what it was and what the prognosis was and and you know i had the um prost- uh, radic- radical robotic prostatectomy. I'm, I'm getting that right. So basically, it was the prostate was removed via ro- robotic type procedure. Gotcha. But really using that as a way to tell the kids that you know you can survive, you can be anything. You know, not only early detection is a good life lesson, um, but positive attitude that this won't stop you. This won't stop mm. anything you do in life. When the cancer came back um, earlier this year, uh, it was kind of a little bit of the same, you know, uh, my wife, you know, really took it hard. And because she's like, Oh, no, we're going down this path again. 
my kids took it very hard again. Um, and so this time though, I felt more empowered that, you know, no, this is going to be fine. It's okay. And I can explain it. Was a, it was this a surprise, right? Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't this time. I, you know, it was, it came back, but I felt like I was better equipped and I, and I, and I felt like it, it's not going to defeat me. So I had to sort of be there and comfort them and let them know and keep, uh, uh, a bright face, uh, positive attitude, you know, and if something was bothering me and basically the radiation, um, I, I had a, a, a reaction to the radiation of really bad fatigue and some other issues, but um, you kind of talk to them about it and you never let them see you defeat it and use it as a life lesson, mm-hmm. um, you know, and so and, and so what I have done, you know, afterwards is everyone, you know, that I knew, Tell them to go get tested. You know, um, black men sometimes or don't want to go to the doctor, don't want to get tested. Some people don't want to get the exam because they have some, you know, issues with that. Um, but it can save your life. You know, if you don't get tested for prostate early enough and it spreads, at that time it's just maintenance. You know, it, you you can't get cured of. It. You got to get it early. Using to say, hey, you know, you can be cured of this. Get out and get tested. You know, doctors, that's what they're there for. That's what they're trained for. And so there's no, there's no, uh, there's nothing wrong with seeking help uh, if you need it. So go out, get tested so you can live, live on and be with your family, friends, live a great life. Yeah, that's great. That's a testimony, brothers. If you're listening and you haven't been tested, um, if you need any more proof, uh, the, the past episode, there was an actual doctor that's gave the statistics and and really implore you to go out and get tested and, and check because and you're if you don't have your health uh it's it's tough you know and you we all need to be there for our families and friends it's right it's, uh, and our wives and 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 parents and kids it's it's very important so thank you for that that's 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 very empowering and i applaud you for your strength and everything so no problem. Um, so on a, on a different note, yeah, you talked about your kids. So you have three kids, mm. just like I have three. Um, <laughs> I have two boys and a girl, but you have two girls and a boy. Yeah. Um, and they all have varied degrees of interest. So um, what are some of the things that you've done, I guess, to feed their passion? Because you have, you, have, um, you have a freshman. Is it freshman in college? She's a sophomore. She's a sophomore. Sophomore in college. You have a soon-to-be freshman in college, and then you have a 11-year-old. So, you know, a lot of different um, yeah, stages yeah. in life. So yeah. what did you, what did you do to feed their passions and, and keep them in, excited about, about the lives, you know, that, they are, that they're doing right now? Yeah, I think, you know, we, we uh, took raising our kids. I think it's kind of evolved over time. But there's kind of four things that I look at when raising kids that I think is very critically important. First is obviously lots of love and kids should know every day that they're loved and they're valued and that home is a safe space and and telling them that you love them, not only in passing, but sometimes you got to grab them by their head and look at them in the eyes and tell them you love them all the time. Flip side of that is a lot of discipline. And, and I don't mean discipline always in, in, in the face of anger, but explaining you're not allowed to do this or you have to do something because of X, Y, and Z. Uh, we're being restrictive to teach you a lesson. 
And so to help them, and, and I think those two things give them a great foundation, educationally, emotionally, and things. The other two things is, uh, uh, you know, one, the one thing is never um, uh, squash a child's dream, no matter how out there it is, mm. never do that, uh, because that can develop and lead lifelong lessons. So my one daughter who's going to Georgetown, when she was young, had this obsession with dolphins. And oh, she, wanted okay. to, she wanted to create what's called Dolphin World, similar to SeaWorld or Disney. And so we bought every book we could on dolphins, blankets, pillows, books. But what that taught her, she could read and tell you every species of dolphin. So she became a voracious reader. She also could talk to anyone about it. So that gave her confidence speaking, uh, confidence in front of grown-ups. Every night she would come in her journal in my room and she would pl help plan. So she started keeping a journal, organizing and writing. And so she grew out of that dolphin world, but those lessons last. Um, and, that's, and that's something that I think sometimes parents squash dreams. I think you should never do that. You, you take those dreams to uh, let them grow and expand and let them figure out who they are. The last thing is that meet kids where they are. By that, I mean, you know, let them lead sometime. So my oldest daughter has wanted to be an architect since he was in like sixth grade. I try to, as a, as a dad, have a one-on-one -on -one trip with each of my kids a year, you know, weekend. She plans them, she leads them, and we go and look at museums, which is a big thing. We go to bookstores. Uh, one, one, one time, she went to every bookstore in Pittsburgh. Uh, I want to go to a museum, learn about art. So I got out of my comfort zone and try to understand as much about her world as I could. And so that I would meet her where she is. And so the connection is greater. That way I can help and support her more to whatever she wanted to do. Uh, I, I think all the steps have, have led them to be not only great students, but very passionate about what they want to do. Um, Lauren is extremely passionate about architecture, Natalie about basketball, but probably even more passionate about civil rights. Um, she's the Black Student Alliance president. You know, she is just very, very passionate about it. And a lot of it had to be just inspiring her to do those things. So, mm. um, yeah, I, I think that's the one thing. I mean, kids, they just need to be, if you give them some direction, some parameters around with love and discipline, and then they can flourish. You know, uh, I don't, I've had, my shot is the way I look at it. You know, I did what I wanted to do, went and ran track and went in my corporate life. I'm not going to enforce that on them, but I'm going to empower them to be the best version of themselves that they want to be. Right. And so when, you know, whether it's dolphin world or wanting to be an architect, you know, we're like, go for it, you know, plan accordingly and go for it. And so it seems to be working out. And so I'm very, very proud of them because uh, they're, I think they're going to go off and do bigger and better things than probably I could do. So yeah, somebody but... to take care of me when I get old. <laughs> <laughs> right. I, I'm looking for that too. <laughs> Trust me. Um, but I, I like the fact that you used to meet them where they are because I think we can, a lot of times 
we can fall back on maybe what we did to be successful and also another and think that, hey, we know the path. But then also, if we haven't been as successful as we thought. Right. Also somewhat bring that fear as well that if you, you know, we because if you don't do this, then you'll end up where I am. So I, I applaud you for that, because it's you know, the fact that you did enjoy your time, no matter no matter what it was, what your experience was, you you were able to say, hey, you are you're going to be in charge of your own life and I will be there to support that. So right. That, that's you know, that's a great way to go when we're thinking about raising our kids, especially a lot of us in our age, uh, our, our kids are starting to really um, think about their lives because they're going to college, you know, mm-hmm. or their job and what careers that they want to do in order to make life better. And of course, now with social media makes, you know, they think they can all be a certain thing. And so oh, allowing, right. them, allowing them to really explore and think of what they want to do is um, really great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's so, so important. Yeah, so important. Yeah. But one thing I think, you know, of course, your family probably knows you very well. And so what would your family say is one thing they do that gets you triggered? That get me triggered? Yes. Um, well, that's a good question. When they don't clean up, I mean, <laughs> it's it's still the the kitchen is is the bane of our existence. Uh, we cannot get them to efficiently clean up the kitchen. That's the one thing. I think the one thing that they notice about me, like being out like at uh, shopping or a restaurant or buying something, that if you pay for something and don't get the sir and don't get what you think you deserve, don't sit idly by. And so I think uh, we were at a restaurant. We were at Cornell this past weekend. We were at a restaurant. We had reservations, and I thought they were taking abnormally long for us to get a table, and it wasn't as fish efficient as I would have expected. And so my oldest daughter is like, don't start snapping at staff. They're just working. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, no, I'm just – but." If you expect something and you're paying for it, this isn't charity, you know, just let them know. But I, I think, you know, the, that in the kitchen, it's really the kitchen, though, because that's every, <laughs> every day. day. Every day. <laughs> I can't get them to clean the kitchen. And, and do you guys usually, and do you usually uh, like, have meals, like family meals every, every night? We do. We try as much as we can um, okay. with their uh, – my daughter's basketball schedule is kind of hard, but we try to right around six o'clock right. try to eat meals so they, as much so as they, we can. Right, so they know there's dishes that need to be put away, and oh, and yeah. and they're, it's not like they're doing the cooking. And so, like, hey, right. put yeah, put the dishes away, right? Right. And how hard is it? Put them, wipe <laughs> off the counter like they walk past just <laughs> crumbs and just stuff. And it's just like really. <laughs> So right, so who's the who is it you or Stephanie that usually comes from behind and 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 cleans up the rest of the mess? I think Steph may clean up. I'm the one that says something. And so I always feel like the bad guy because I'm always saying something, but you know, but now I've gotten to the point I'm like, look, clean up because you know your mom's gonna be mad. So I found a way oh, okay. to put the blame off on her. When it's really, you know, me. <laughs> <laughs> awesome, yeah. Well, I mean, when they're all together, you know, we have actually a chalkboard 
um, black on nice. the wall, the black, you know, the black chalk, and then is a rotating schedule. So, I mean, they do some aspects together, but then there's one individual that needs to make sure it's completely clean. So there, there's a little right. tidbit for you as, <laughs> as they, as they get together for the, you know, as they come together back for the summer or whenever. So All right. this has been, yeah, this has been fantastic. And as I do and kind of end with all of my um, shows is I, we really talk about, you know, things that we're doing, but we don't think about how we feel. So I'd love to hear you. What is, what is on your mind right now as a black man in America? Ooh, that's a good question. I, I, what's on my mind as a black man in America is, you know, I, I see, you know, the, the, the <laughs> Jim Crow coming back in some, res- in some respects, you know, with the, the, what's going on in Georgia and what's going on with the election, the last administration. So what I worry about is the, the ability for my kids to get a fair shot the what they will see and um, what they will experience, which we were hoping they weren't. Uh, this past year was tough. I mean, I'm no exception. It was a tough on all black families. You know, my my son um, was really having a difficult time because when I would leave the house to go walk or do any exercise, you know, he saw the footage of Audrey being shot. You know, my daughter was dealing with the social media, the, these kids doing the George Floyd joke or whatever, like kneeling and stuff. And so mm. this stuff is triggering to them. Um, and as a, as a black man, I worry about, I cannot protect them the way I always hoped I could. And so it worries me that I may provide for them like a great education and, and everything, but then they're going to go out in society and just, be judged and valued unfairly because they're black and it's probably very naive but always hoping that we would be on we would be beyond this and they wouldn't have to deal with it but that's the thing that really worries me right now you know i just it's it's just it's un it's unfair and it's just a shame we're at this point so you know I, I value you in these type of forums. Uh, we need to do more of them so that, you know, confidence is, is my favorite word. And that's the word that I told my kids in the minute they could understand them, that confidence is the greatest word that you can have. Not cockiness, but confidence. And so they're going to need it dealing with the society we're in. And so that's that's the thing that really, you know, frustrates me right right now that I think about quite a bit. Great. That's fantastic. Well, I have to say, um, Pittsburgh is a much better place um, with you in it, you and your family, because I think your your family's awesome and you should be commended and proud of what you and Stephanie are both doing uh, with within the community, the business community and also uh, your family. So I thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Keith. And thank you. I mean, I thank you for doing this. I mean, you're you're providing a platform and it's well done. Uh, thank you. Michael really dropped some gems on us today. He gave us tips on how to raise our kids and the importance of getting tested for prostate cancer. This definitely is a show you want to share with the brothers in your life. Black Men Speak was written, produced and edited by me, Keith Dent. 
You can find the Black Men Speak podcast wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you have black men in your life doing extraordinary things and you want them featured on the show, please email me at info at keithdent.com. At the end of every show, we like to end with a quote, and this one comes from Dave Winfield. You know heroes are ordinary people that have achieved extraordinary things in life. This is Black Men Speak Podcast. Peace.